0: Good morning and welcome to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. I'm Rabbi Stephen Garton speaking to you from Ottawa, Canada. As listeners of our program know, each and every week I have the pleasure of unpacking a uh, reading from the Jewish text known as the Torah, the five books of Moses, the weekly reading. I uh, invite a guest to join me on our show And we explore some of the more interesting aspects of the parashah. This week, our parashah is entitled Mishpatim, which can be translated in many different ways. Perhaps my guest and I will uh, investigate how to understand that Hebrew word. It begins in Exodus 21 and continues through Exodus 24. And it's the weekly portion that immediately follows the revelation at Mount Sinai, which we discussed in a previous show. I want to offer an overview of this parasha so that those of you who are following with a text can follow us, and those of you who are not following in either the Hebrew text or one of the many English translations will know where we are. Following last week's revelation at Sinai, the eternal God of the Israelites legislates a series of laws for the people of Israel. These include, but not extensive, uh, not totally inclusive, these include the laws of the indentured servant, penalties for murder, kidnapping, assault, theft, civil laws pertaining to redress of damages the granting of loans and responsibilities of what are known as the four guardians, and the rules governing the conduct of justice by law courts. Also included in this week's portion are laws warning against mistreatment of foreigners, the observance of the seasonal festivals and agricultural gifts that are to be brought to the Holy Temple in Jerusalem, and prohibition against cooking with meat with milk, and the uh, commandment with regard to prayer, as the tradition understands it. Although the parasha of this week contains 53 commandments, uh, tradition interprets it as there are 23 uh, positive commandments and 30 prohibition. Once we leave the litany of commandments, or mishpatim, Uh, The Torah portion continues, and God promises to bring the people of Israel to the Holy Land and warns them against assuming pagan ways of its current inhabitants. The people exclaim at the end of the parashah, we will do and we will hear na'asev nishma, all that the Eternal commands us. Leaving Aaron and Hur in charge of the Israelite camp, Moses ascends Mount Sinai and remains there for 40 days and 40 nights to receive the Torah. That is the traditional understanding of what takes place in our parashah. With me um, this morning to discuss the parashah is Rabbi Howard A. Berman, Uh, Rabbi Berman, after attending undergraduate degree in European history from the University of London in England, studied for the rabbinate at the Leo Beck College in London, the Hebrew University in Jerusalem, and the Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion in Cincinnati, where he received a degree of Masters of Hebrew Letters and was ordained as a rabbi. He also pursued graduate studies in American Religious History at the University of Chicago Divinity School and the Chicago Theological Seminary. In 1999, he was awarded the degree of Doctor of Divinity by the Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion. In a moment, Rabbi Berman will share with us his congregational experience, but it's important to note that um, Rabbi Berman is the co-editor of the Union Prayer Book Sinai edition, the revised contemporary language version of the original Union Prayer Book. He is also the editor of the new Union Haggadah, the updated version of the original Reform Haggadah, known as the Union Haggadah. And he is one of the uh, guiding lights in reintroducing to North American Judaism what is known as classical reform Judaism, which perhaps he'll speak to in a moment. Rabbi Berman, welcome to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts.
1: Thank you, Rabbi Garten. Wonderful to be with you today.
0: A pleasure to have you. Um, I didn't list some of your wonderful congregational accomplishments. Perhaps you'll inform our our listeners where you've had the pleasure of serving as a rabbi.
1: Well, my career has actually been, um, for me, an incredibly meaningful way of carrying through the philosophy that you alluded to of the historic, liberal, progressive understanding of Jewish tradition that is known as classical Reform Judaism that was grounded in the early history of our movement in the 19th and 20th centuries. Uh, I began my career actually as an intern before I was ordained at the um historic congregation of Baltimore Har Sinai Congregation, which was led by the leading social justice advocate of early Reform Judaism, Rabbi David Einhorn, one of the leading abolitionists of his day, and one of the leading um lights of liberal, progressive, social justice-focused religion in the 19th century, uh, to have been his successor. And then right after ordination, going to Temple Emmanuel in New York City, uh, which again was a long-term bastion of this historic liberal position, uh, enabled me to carry through that thread uh, and from there, uh, becoming a senior rabbi of Chicago Sinai congregation, which has been long regarded as one of the national bastions of this um, historic liberal expression of Reformed Judaism, with some of the great rabbis of our movement as my predecessors. Um, later, I, I went um, 20 years ago to uh, from Chicago to Boston founded a new re- a reform congregation based on this uh, contemporary understanding of this historic tradition of classical reform. And uh, through its iterations, um, I now just recently retired on my 50th anniversary of ordination, Nation and uh, looking forward to doing fun things like this.
0: Well, I thank you for sharing with the audience that history, because it's a wonderful way to segue into this portion, which is uh, focused on law, and uh, what I in, uh, uh, called classical reform Judaism had a very particular understanding of how we should relate to law as expressed in the Torah. So perhaps we can begin our conversation with you uh, sharing with our audience the notion of how um, early Reform Judaism, the original Reform Judaism, as as expressed in uh, the late nineteenth and early twentieth century, understood these biblical laws.
1: One of the most important goals of The early reform movement and the new progressive vision that emerged in Europe in the early 19th century was to address the reality that the place of law, ritual law, even civil law, uh, communal law that had been so central to uh, Jewish experience from the biblical period, that that needed to be um, approached in a new way, uh, particularly in that period of the what's known as the emancipation, when Jews of Europe um, in early United States were becoming full citizens, uh, no longer isolated from Western culture in the locked ghettos of Europe, And now that Jews were considered full citizens and subject to the legal systems of a variety of of Western democracies, it was important for um, the early reformers to reformulate the idea of moving away from seeing the Torah, seeing the goals of Judaism as the fulfillment of legal um, provisions. Uh, halakha, uh, religious and ritual law and communal law, and instead to, as they understood it, move from that old priestly understanding of the importance of ritual and communal civil law to um, a more prophetically based understanding of the ethical message of the Torah, and um, this parashah that we're discussing, Mishpatim, um, is a perfect example of uh, the beginnings of the narrative of legal provisions and ordinances that um, would be and still are sometimes a difficult challenge for the modern reader to understand and to appreciate. And the reformers felt that, More important than the legalistic provision was what was the ethical mandate that these laws and provisions and rituals were trying to express. And so that is really, I think, where Mishpatim, where this focus on law first comes in the Torah. Um, This is where we can have a particular understanding of this week's reading.
0: That That's very helpful, and I hope our listeners um, are able to make the transition from what appears to be simply a uh, listing of what you and I and others might uh, identify as civil law um, and not um, obvious religious law, if we're speaking about murder and kidnapping and assault and theft and redress of damages and granting of loans, Um, one would see that as more in line with a civil authority than a religious authority. But you're suggesting that our listeners hear each of these laws as reflecting some sort of moral imperative.
1: Yes, in terms of our ability to relate to this ancient text. But we have to then acknowledge something that many well-intentioned people who try and encounter the Bible often forget. Uh, I think we are used to it in Western civilization, uh, which of course is very influenced by a Christian perspective. Even Jews um, have come to feel that um, the Bible is um, more of a collection of epic stories, um, myths, and, and stories of the chronicle of early Jewish history, uh, that it is uh, a chronicle of the early history of the human family, and uh, that it also encompasses the great ethical mandates of the prophets and the inspirational texts of the Psalms, for instance. But I think we often forget that the book that many people regard as a religious icon uh, leather-bound in black with gold edges uh, sitting on a nightstand, that that wasn't only a devotional volume for the uh, early Judaism and for the ancient people of Israel. It was their constitution. It was their entire legal and judicial and social code, and it was intended to be. Uh, so many people who, and with good intentions say, I'm going to start reading the Bible cover to cover. And that kind of works really well through Genesis and through Exodus chapter 20, beginning with the creation of the world and the epic stories of the Tower of Babel and Noah. And um, and then, of course, the patriarchs and matriarchs, uh, the stories of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Sarah and Rebecca, Rachel and Leah, and then the Joseph stories. And then, of course, the beginnings of the Exodus narrative. These are gripping, very often gripping, literary epics, and, and they make for good reading. Um, and then you culminate with this wonderful dramatic moment at Mount Sinai with the text of the Ten Commandments. And so the reader is on a real roll, and all of a sudden, in Exodus 22, in Exodus 21, rather, we enter Mishpatim, and the game is changed completely. And that's where many, um, uh, a well-intentioned Bible reader came to realize the more Jewish uh, approach, which is the study rather than the reading of the literal text, that these all these now legal provisions not always very inspiring, sometimes even rather offensive to our modern sensibilities, Uh, since they are grounded in a thousands-of-year-old Middle Eastern cultural setting. People then need to understand that Judaism has understood these texts with generations of interpretation to try and discern what the meaning could be for each successive era. And that's where the classical reformers in the 19th century said, we have that same right and responsibility as modern Jews. For us, these ancient laws are to be understood more as a broad sensibility of a just community, a just society, and a personal ethical system.
0: So if I understand what you're saying... It's not the individual law that you and the adherents of classical Judaism, um, reform Judaism, would uh, focus on, but the broader conceptual design of these laws, namely um, whether the law regarding loans um, is actually – um, An imperative from the divine uh, being is less important than the kind of society that these laws together are attempting to promulgate. Is that a fair restatement?
1: Yeah, I think it, I think it is, with the understanding that one of the basic premises of all reform Judaism is that these are not the literal words of the divine being. They are the collective uh, paths and journeys that our ancestors took in search of God's presence and will, but that they represent human understandings and formulations of spiritual truth. So for us to understand that um, what these laws meant at a certain time and place, uh, 3,500 years ago in the desert, is very different than what these concepts can mean for us in the modern world. It is in no way lessening their sanctity. It is in no way denying that these are divine in, in, in the spirit, but these were human narratives, human formulations, of um, of a early Jewish people whose whole understanding of reality was to try and understand what God wanted of them. So
0: as you um, shared with us your congregational experience, which took you from Baltimore to Chicago to Boston, and perhaps a couple of stops in between before retirement, um, and you took a parasha like this, would you— Explain it to your congregants um, as something that was um, divinely inspired literature, or just um, literature which had the imprint of historical importance to the Jewish people?
1: Um, I would definitely focus on the earlier uh, position that this is divinely inspired um, both in terms of its, the human mind and conscience created by the divine that gave our ancestors the sensibilities and interests in providing this view of reality and gives us the same. Um, and I wouldn't even use the word literature. It's it's literary, but to me, it's. Um, beyond literature. It is still Holy Scripture, but Holy Scripture meaning that it emerges out of a human quest for the divine, rather than um, a stenographer's version of what Moses heard at the top of Mount Sinai.
0: It is true that in traditional Judaism, um, however, we understand that. But let's not categorize traditional Judaism by denominational um, adjectives, but uh, or ag- uh, adjectival. Uh, but traditional Judaism understood this as Moses was the stenographer. Um, and what you're suggesting is that um, there was a divine capacity through the generations to apprehend. God's intentions. Um, And therefore, this is only one uh, expression of God's word. And there can be multiple expressions of God's word as we move through the generations of human uh, comprehension.
1: Um, Yes, I, I would agree with that. I would add the importance of understanding at least or a non-fundamentalist, non-literalist view, Um, we do approach this text as a composite of many different elements of literary passages and texts from different times and places in the early Jewish uh, biblical period with different agendas from different parties. Uh, This is not a book that um, Moses sat down and started, uh, writing it's it's a seamless, seamless tapestry, if you will, of a variety of texts that were um, put together, sewn together, if we will, uh, sometimes with uh, an intent culturally and literarily that might not necessarily be the way we, in 20th century Western civilization, would see the connections, but. Um, It definitely represents the idea of um, multiple sources, all considered to be of divine inspiration, if not revelation, um, all being reverently and, and with great sanctity, being culled together to form what would emerge as a coherent holy scripture.
0: We, I mentioned, and you did as well, that the litany of laws in this Torah portion um, sometimes amounts to over 50 laws. Um, and while it begins as a series of laws more easily identified as civil, the portion does seem to um, conclude with reminders of ritual obligations. And one of the most well-known uh, statements is that you shall not boil a kid in its mother's milk, um, which has been interpreted over the generations to be the foundational statement regarding uh, kashrut, um, kosher meaning uh, that which is fit to eat. Um, from your perspective, How would you um, explain to our listeners, um, through your eyes, how they should understand this um, simple phrase, do not boil a kid in its mother's milk, which doesn't necessarily talk about separate dishes and separate pots or any of that?
1: Um, I think we should raise up what many scholars have pointed to as a very humanistic Compassionate sensibility that the idea of um preparing a uh, the meat of a baby goat to eat the idea of boiling it in its own mother's milk seemed to be an extraordinarily dissonant and um kind of cruel image for um later generations of Jews at least uh and of course how whatever was the reason, there's always the argument as well as just health concerns in the middle of the desert, so to speak, with sanitation and things like that. Um, But we know that the underlying theme in later Jewish thought was to, quote, build a fence around the Torah and to um, expand those ways of observing the laws that would protect whatever the original intent was. And I think the evolution of the very complex laws of the dietary laws of kashrut is the classic example of this building of a fence around a seemingly simple, self-evident, of course we wouldn't want to do that um, with any sensitivity or sensibility. But then from that, developing a whole discipline of of approach to uh, eating.
0: Well, you make it much more um, understandable that if this is a collection of value statements framed in the vocabulary of antiquity, um, that... our ancient ancestors would have made more declarative statements um, and hoped that those declarative statements would have been reflective of values. And so the simple do not boil a kid in its mother's milk um, offers an opportunity for greater interpretation, as you've said, um, making us sensitive um, to the realities um, of um, not just health, but a value system of human life, and that animals are part of God's creation and therefore they too should be respected. Um, we are coming to the close of our conversation, and there's never enough time uh, to cover all that we want to say. I'm wondering if you have one last thought to share with our listeners about this parasha.
1: Uh, I guess the major one would be to um when we encounter these texts, and very often they seem extraordinarily alien or remote from us in our own time and place to have this broader understanding that they were part of this progressive revelation, as classical reform Judaism calls it, where God was revealed anew and in different ways in successive generations so that we don't have to um, feel bound necessarily legally by these texts, but we are um, mandated as Jews to try and search for what there can be in them that speak to us in our time.
0: I want to thank my guest, Rabbi Howard Berman. For sharing with us these insights. You can hear our conversation on CHRI 99.1 FM or as a web or as a podcast on the CHRI.ca website or wherever you download your favorite podcast. For Jewish faith and Jewish facts, I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten wishing you a good day and shalom.